Welcome to the ninth podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty, discussing a new publication, Armageddon and Okra, Australian air power in the Middle East, a century apart. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us chart ways forward. Today's podcast is, is sponsored by the Conflict and Society Research Group, based at UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded from the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. The dispatch of an Ottoman army by Australian-led Imperial Air Power in the Wali Fire on 21st September 1918 occurred just five years after the advent of military aviation in Australia. In 1914, the fledgling Australian Air Service operated the flimsy Bristol Boxkite. Four years later, it was flying the far more advanced Bristol F2B fighter. This leap forward represented a profound progress in technology that has typified the technical development of aviation, particularly in Australia, ever since. Coincidentally, on 21st September 2014, 96 years to the day after the events of the Wadi Fire. Australian squadrons were again deployed to the same part of the world where they would remain for more than three years on operations against extremist terrorism. Armageddon and Okra contrast these events a century apart in the context of the development of Australian air power. The book tracks the history whereby Australia has maintained a balanced air service compelling high technical, logistics and engineering standards and effective training and command and control systems for more than 100 years. I am Clinton Fernandez, and it's my pleasure to host today's conversation. I'm joined today by Lewis Fredrickson, the author of Armageddon and Opera. And just a note, I am in a car park in Melbourne because we are all in COVID-19 lockdown, and Lewis is in a soundproof studio in Canberra. So if you hear any audio infelicities, that's the reason. Lewis lectures in the history and strategy of air power as the Chief of Air Force Fellow at the University of New South Wales at the Australian Defence Force Academy. As an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, he has deployed several times to the Middle East region and has particularly enjoyed his service as a qualified aviation instructor and equally here at UNSW. He considers his role in assisting in the compilation of Armageddon and Okra to be one of the highlights of 30 years' service in the Air Force. Lewis, welcome. Thank you, Clinton. Why did you write the book? That's the most obvious of questions for me, Clinton. Um, uh, my my 30 years' service has just been so uh, superb, and it's uh, one way in which I find that I can give back to the Air Force uh, after three decades, if you will. Um, I think in a deeper sense, though, we write about what we know, or at least that's the way it should be. Uh, I'm an Air Force officer, of course, a, a military aviator. I'm also very lucky to have been schooled in the humanities. Um, so as I understand that, the Air Force is about people, and I've written this shortish work as a, a tribute to those people who have served and who continue to serve. Um, from this, uh, I might say that as an Air Force officer of 30 years' experience, I've also got an intrinsic 
sense of serving in an institution that's almost as old as Federated Australia. Um, what that means for me, and I believe that this is also an inherently human trait, is that understanding who we are is elemental to belonging to any organisation. Um, knowing myself, knowing my service is uh, only a start of that process. It's up to an institution like the Air Force to reinforce an understanding of its journey. Uh, and I think that the RAF does this very well. Uh, I might also highlight that the Air Force History and Heritage Branch is instrumental in these processes that I'm trying to describe here. Uh, through its programs and through individuals such as those in my position here at ADFA, we work on uh, uh, passing on the values, um, our experiences and the ethos of an Air Force to the subsequent generations of, of personnel who join. I'm very fortunate in serving alongside uh, like-minded men and women within History and Heritage Branch and they endorse the concepts that I've attempted to, uh, to articulate in this short book. Uh, in fact, while I wrote the words, the book was very much a joint effort and the corollary of uh, all of that, of course, is that little books such as this one also paint the picture for wider society in describing what its Air Force does. Yeah, indeed. And uh, in the book, what propositions do you make? That's a, uh, that's a superb question. Of course, it's a, uh, it's a book on history, even though half of it is modern history. Um, and I believe that's very closely related to why I actually wrote the book. Um, my immediate proposition is that the Air Force, uh, air power, and from there the application of air power as a, uh, a military instrument is about people. Of course, when one sees uh, uh, an inordinately complicated machine like a wedge tail, a uh, AEW and C aircraft or a F-35A lightning fighter jet and it's very easy to confuse this fact that it's about people with the concept that air power is about technology. Um, the wedge tail, for example, is filled with electronic gadgetry and enough wire to stretch around the world at the equator. And of course an F-35 is a, a, a veritable flying cyber system in which a single individual, the pilot, has access to, uh, to any amount of satellite-enabled situational awareness. Um, these aeroplanes, of course, they're products of today, but a hundred years ago, uh, uh, the same principles were uh, exactly relevant of the, uh, the aircraft a century ago. Uh, uh, and I'm talking about the products of the Bristol Company or de Havilland uh, or, or Sotwith, and these aeroplanes were the technical apogee of, uh, of their day. Um, what I'm saying, I suppose, about the application of air power in Armageddon and Okra is that it's about warfare. And in that, war is a particularly human endeavour. Uh, in the West, we see this in a, uh, a very special way. And while this has evolved since the days of uh, ancient philosophical thought, I can say that it's, it's probably taken on a particular form since the, uh, the 1700s. Uh, one, one fine mind gives us some insight here. Uh, the philosopher Immanuel Kant gave us the notion of the categorical imperative at the turn of the, the 19th century. 
And that is in human terms, uh, he saw that uh, no one person is a means to another person's end, but that every individual is an end unto themselves. Uh, that's, that's a very important uh, insight. Of course, none of it is objective reality, but it's as close as we in the West can come to uh, a universal understanding, if you like, of what it's like to be a person. Um, From a twist in this understanding comes our other very Western understanding, and that is that a military instrument, in this case air power, that's what we're chatting about, is a means to an end, but that warfare is never an end unto itself. Um, None of this is to say, of course, that technology isn't central to the effective application of air power because, of course, it is. That's what we're talking about. Uh, Effective air power is entirely about the use of technology in a judicious way. And in this case, Armageddon at the dawn of the era, but latterly the principles uh, uh, remain unchanged a century later. Uh, In Australia's circumstance, then, the other premise that stems from technology is the manner in which this technology has been acquired. Um, to understand that, we have to understand that Australia has always gone to war under the mantle of a great and powerful friend. And that's the, uh, the second and equally important proposition. And I think it's borne out throughout the text. Um, Armageddon, in this context, refers to the Battle of Megiddo in Palestine during the Great War in which Australian-led air power was instrumental in the destruction of a Turkish army. Um, And OCRA, of course, that's the name of the modern operation in which uh, the Australian government committed air power to a coalition force to uh, uh, operate against fundamentalists in the, uh, 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 the era from about 2016, 2014, I'm sorry, to, uh, to 2018. Uh, of course, uh, uh, there's a coincidence. It's the same Australian squadron operating in the same part of the world, uh, and it goes further. In 1918 and again in 2014, uh, both contingents had access to the best air power technology in the world at the time. Um, both contingents fitted perfectly into a, uh, a wider construct. Uh, in 1918, we were elemental to British Empire Air Forces, but in 2014, we, uh, we melded perfectly with uh, US-led air power uh, uh, operations and coalition forces. And that says a lot about what the Australian military experience has been. And I might add or, or finish by saying that interoperability is therefore the key to all of this. Well, thank you. You make some good points about uh, fighting uh, and air power ultimately being about humans because we know that uh, wars end not because of technology, but because the other side has lost its will to continue fighting uh, for whatever reason. Um, and on this point of interoperability, uh, what is the importance of interoperability with the great power? Clinton, fundamentally, it's about systems and processes. Um, interoperability allows Australia to deter a potential threat because we're enabled to uh, both acquire and then operate high-end technology and capabilities. Of course, these capabilities would be beyond our reach if uh, we didn't have uh, um, uh, that level of interoperability with a big and powerful friend. So equally, 
interoperability means that we have shared security interests with our major defence allies and partners. I want to touch again then on this notion of uh, a protective mantle of great and powerful friends. And that is, uh, that is of course, a premise of Armageddon and Okra. A hundred years ago, our defence and security was guaranteed by our status as a dominion in the British Empire. And today, of course, our security is underwritten by our alliance with the United States. And, of course, that's manifested in the ANZUS Treaty of 1951. Um, national security, though, doesn't just mean this physical security. Uh, uh, we also talk, and, and you um, uh, have uh, uh, taught on your courses about aspects such as economics, cultural values, and the respect of interests of those in power. They're all very important, too. So uh, I might say once more that interoperability is one of the main themes in the book and our ability to work with other nations and gain access to the latest international technology associated with air power stems from this sort of foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, the book certainly goes through the, the strong theme of continuity um, of our external relations as manifest in uh, the use of our air power. Uh, you know, hundred years past. Uh, but now, for somebody who is not uh, a professional aviator like yourself, uh, whose only experience uh, of aircraft uh, is uh, catching uh, a commercial air- airliner, and uh, experience of combat is fighting for sausage rolls, for example, at the Quarter Scum. Uh, so, for somebody who is not an airman. Uh, you are writing this as an airman, so what are the tacit and assumed knowledges uh, that's inherent uh, in the text that you've written? Of course. Um, the immediate response to this is that air power encompasses more than the possession of aircraft. Um, effective air power requires a, a, a balance, a type of balance that few nations have been able to master. And fortunately, Australia is one of the nations that has mastered that notion of balance. Um, By that, I mean an ability to conduct um, the numerous roles and missions associated with air power all at once. Uh, And this compels high technical, logistics and engineering standards and effective training and uh, command and control systems. This list isn't uh, exhaustive, of course. Um, uh, The overriding requirement for small to medium forces such as uh, those possessed by Australia, is that air power uh, is inherently joint in this wider international context. And I touched on that, of course, in the last question. Um, As a professional airman, what I can add to this that is tacit is that the story gives an appreciation of sheer distance. And we live in a country uh, uh, where the tyranny of distance is paramount. Uh, I'm talking about operations across the Bible land, so from the uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Egypt, um, uh, up through the Levant into uh, Syria, and more so in modern uh, um, operations during Operation Okra across Jordan, uh, into Syria, uh, along the Persian Gulf, and of course uh, all over Iraq as well. Um, these considerations go to the core of what it's like to operate and maintain aircraft in this part of the world. I I, I can paint a picture for you, in fact. Um, During Operation Okra, 
Uh, we based our platforms at facilities in the UAE, so the United Arab Emirates, at the southern end of the Persian Gulf. Uh, the distance from those bases to the southernmost city in Iraq, uh, Basra is the name of that city, is nearly 600 miles in a straight line. Uh, the distance from Basra to Iraq's northernmost city, Mosul, is then another 450 miles. So uh, we're talking 1,000 miles, 1,600 kilometres. Uh, to get to Iraq uh, from the UAE means flying northwest along the Persian Gulf and then getting on way, uh, onwards airways clearances all the way up uh, over the ocean that way. Um, that means liaising with air traffic control services from Qatar, Bahrain, uh, Saudi Arabia, I'm just uh, ticking off the nations, Kuwait, and finally into Iraq itself. Uh, crews also had to be sensitive of Iranian airspace, which abuts that projected flight path over to the east, of course, and they had to conduct an appreciation of where they might have to divert their aircraft along the way should they have encountered technical uh, or other combat-related difficulties as well. Um, the analogy for us in Australia uh, as airmen is this. It equates to flying from Brisbane directly to Melbourne to sit over the top of Melbourne and conduct operations for several hours and then turn around and fly safely back to Brisbane. So, of course, all of these processes are inherently complicated. Um, I've only touched on an aircrew perspective here too as well. Um, the exigencies of the climate were, if anything, just as harsh for all of the personnel involved right across the theatre. Yeah, you know, the point you make about uh, the distance from Brisbane to Melbourne uh, shows uh, the lengths involved, uh, but it doesn't fully capture, of course, the complexity of uh, what you've actually had to do, uh, namely negotiate with a number of individual countries, uh, possibly contested airspace, certainly sensitive airspace. And, of course, there's, uh, you know, only one language in Australia where you're communicating, uh, and you know in advance, uh, through tried and, and, and tested uh, experience, uh, where you can stop, where you can uh, divert uh, if you have any technical difficulties. So that, it's good that you, you brought up uh, the complexity involved in conducting these operations. Now, you mentioned at the end of this answer about how the exigencies of the climate were harsh for personnel. Mm. What are the physical effects on air and ground crews uh, in operating with these environments? Yeah, of course. Um, the short answer is that the Middle East is uh, it's punishing. Um, the climate's extreme in, in terms of the heat, of course. It's a desert. And when I say extreme, that's extreme even by Australian standards. Uh, I've read a thermometer in Basra, that city I mentioned, at the height of summer, and it's tipped 50 degrees centigrade and uh, 85% humidity and Basra is on the coast that's a uh, that's a cool part of Iraq as well um, equally I've heard from air and ground crews that temperatures on a flight line in summer on asphalt and bitumen can top 70 degrees centigrade I, I can't even imagine what it's like working on an aircraft or sitting in an open cockpit while the aircraft's being prepared for uh, for flight during the heat of the day 
I've actually heard stories from the technicians that operated on Operation Okra that some of the air crews had to be physically lifted uh, or, or assisted from their cockpits at the end of a sortie because they were, they were so exhausted from the, uh, the heat and the intensity of having to, uh, to focus for uh, 10 or 12 hours at a time. Uh, I know that the, uh, the technicians also worked out a, a shift system for the duration of Operation Okra so that they could uh, maintain aeroplanes in the cool of the evening or early in the morning. But even so, that's a, uh, that's a relative term uh, as well. Um, temperatures in the UAE in summer at dawn are still uh, around the 30 to 35 degree mark. One thing that I saw in the UAE uh, that fascinated me was uh, uh, the concept of an ice vest which was worn by technicians who were operating in the heat of the day out on a flight line. Um, these ground crews would store a vest and that was literally made out of cooler packs in a freezer and they would wear them when they were working outside in the extremes of uh, temperature. And this kept them cool for a little while because of course they, uh, they quickly melted in the, uh, the heat of the, uh, the weather. Um, accommodation and messing facilities, they afforded some relief uh, 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 in modern terms because uh, they're air conditioned. But I've got to say that I greatly admire the personnel uh, that I wrote about who operated in Palestine during the First World War. Of course, back then there was no air conditioning. Uh, there were no modern facilities and uh, the standards were very rudimentary by comparison to today. Um, I've spoken about people. Uh, I, I must also highlight that this sort of environment and climate is just as punishing on machinery. Um, temperatures are, are like the ones I've described. They simply bake equipment that's left outside in the sunlight. Um, if you can imagine complex wiring, uh, that breaks down very quickly in the heat and pliable materials such as rubber simply melt or fall to bits in, uh, in the midday sun. And I haven't even mentioned the dust either. Um, these temperatures, these extreme temperatures, they precipitate updrafts of heated air in the middle of the year and they create very large dust storms. Um, the Arabs call them the Kamsan. They, they result, generally speaking, across the middle of summer in uh, Arabia and across the, uh, uh, the northern parts of Africa. They cross Palestine through Jordan into Iraq and maintaining uh, aircraft in dust storms like that is a, a very difficult endeavour. Dust gets into everything. Um, during Operation Okra, they had relatively sealed and air-conditioned uh, tents as maintenance facilities uh, but there weren't any luxuries like that during the First World War. The point about the dust storms is well made. Of course, it's hard to do this uh, unless one types the word Kamsin, K-H-A-M-S-I-N, mm. into a search engine. And you can get a, a visual of it because you can't convey this on a podcast. Mm. But upon seeing that, you understand where the literary uh, allegories and word pictures painted in the Bible come from. You know, the crossing of the Red Sea and the plagues and so on. Mm. You get a sense of where they would have got their, um, their literary imagery. The other point about uh, the heat uh, is, uh, is not fully appreciated by people who think that it's mostly uh, 
you know, the army and in particular the infantry or the special forces that have to deal with physically demanding environments. Uh, but I've seen intelligence officers unable to do a proper debrief uh, with uh, pilots and the other aircrew who, who land until they've had liters of green cordial and things mm. like that just in order to be able to talk mm. so that the physical aspect is not appreciated. This once again goes to human factors um, in aviation, not just technology, uh, mm. which is the point you made uh, earlier on in this, uh, in this conversation. Uh, now, you also alluded to the respect you have uh, for uh, the people 100 years ago. Uh, so I want to press you on this point. What is the similarity or what are the similarities and what are the differences uh, between Armageddon and Okra, the First World War, and uh, uh, the ones in the 21st century? Good. Um, we're talking 100 years, and I think 100 years is a period sufficiently long to refine any sort of theory. And it's, uh, Clinton, it's, it's coincidental that air power is also 100 years old too. Uh, what I can say is that the fundamentals of air power remain unchanged. So we're, we're talking applied mathematics, uh, engineering problems, weather, and all of these are very much the same now as they were in the First World War. Uh, I might even say that such matters are immutable. Certainly that's why I discuss them with our students here on campus. And that pertains to what is unchanging in aviation. Um, there are formulas, of course, that are uh, examples of that uh, reality. Speed equals distance on time is uh, perhaps the most simple of those. And that is the same if one is doing one and a half miles a minute or eight miles a minute. The faster you fly, the, uh, the quicker you arrive, though the more fuel this takes. Uh, uh, such matters were this way 100 years ago, and largely they remain unchanged now. There, there are a lot of permutations around those sorts of formulas. What I can say that's changed today is technology. Technology uh, today is able to contend with these immutable factors uh, and realise effects in air power in a way that we couldn't have even imagined 100 years ago. It also means that air power has the potential to realise effects across a spectrum of conflict uh, simultaneously. And that makes it a very powerful instrument uh, when it's coupled with today's technology. Um, today, we operate jets, uh, beyond visual range missiles. Uh, we enable, uh, we're enabled uh, by space-based systems, uh, precision munitions, and, and today... Uh, of course, uh, cyberspace as well. Platforms can fly a 1,000 miles to an area of operations and they can release ordnance with GPS-enabled accuracy. Everything is enabled by space and satellite systems and everyone operating aircraft has the potential to know exactly what is going on in the battle space around them immediately. That's what's different today and it all relates to how technology has enabled air power to more effectively exploit the air domain. Well, you certainly make uh, some very strong points about the extreme sophistication, the cutting-edge nature of the technology. Uh, but what's good about your publication mm. is the point that 100 years ago, that's exactly the same thing as what people thought then too, mm. that this is the cutting-edge of technology. Uh, now, does air power 
favour the operation that was just discussed? Well, the short answer to that is yes. Um, the use of air power as a precise instrument against an adversary, um, that enables us to exploit the characteristics of the air domain and we create um, a favourable outcome from that. What that means in a campaign such as that against uh, ISIL is that air power brings a particular set of characteristics to a planning table that will give the Iraqi forces and coalition uh, platforms a distinct advantage. And I'm thinking of simple words like speed, uh, reach, perspective, precision, and so on. Um, uh, What do these mean? Uh, Well, these answers are out of a textbook, but they're they're quite self-explanatory. Speed is the ability to cover distance quickly and to create effects. Uh, Reach is the ability to project military power over long distances, largely unconstrained by physical barriers. Uh, Perspective, the greater the field of view and extended horizon of the operational environment, uh, which is obtained by virtue of a platform's operating altitude. And precision, of course, is the ability to employ lethal or non-lethal force and achieve effects accurately. So... Uh, Air power in this context is about the delivery of munitions precisely and proportionately in order to halt uh, an organisation like ISIL uh, as it rampages across Iraq and Syria. And air power did this very well in the war against uh, Iraq and Syria. And in fact, without air power, uh, it's doubtful that the Iraqis could have halted them. But of course... I'm only talking about immediate effects when I talk about military defeat. I think I mentioned earlier that air power is a means to an end and never an end unto itself. What's important yep. is that the, uh, the politica, political outcome is uh, what is central to uh, uh, the, uh, the end state when air power is applied in this environment. I hope that answered the question. Uh, yeah, definitely. It answers the question, and I would encourage people who listen to the podcast to read the book, which is going to be launched soon, and will be available at all good bookstores. Uh, Lewis, uh, we've come to the end of this conversation. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add to conclude? <clears throat> yeah, look, I, I, I feel as though I've only really just touched on the topic of air power, Clinton. Um if, if listeners are interested in politics or air power or notions of the military instrument, I'd encourage them all to look uh, at the book or, or these concepts and how everything is actually related to everything else. I, I find uh, these notions quite fascinating. Um, but to wrap things up, I, I'd like to extend my appreciation once more to Air Force History and Heritage Brands, who has, uh, or uh, the people in that organisation, have enabled me to get these concepts that we've discussed briefly today down on paper. This branch of the Air Force serves a, a crucial role, uh, uh, educational role, uh, uh, that both informs and enables our modern force and uh, wider society as well. Clinton, equally though, I must thank you for your encouragement as I've penned this small volume. Uh, your perspective and mentoring in my role as a CAF fellow here at ADFA has shaped my understanding of the place where Australia sits in the modern world, and I thank you for that. 
oh, you're welcome, and you know, you're a uh, valuable and valued colleague. Uh, so, with that, thank you for joining us for such a fascinating discussion, and thanks to our audience for your interest today. This was the ninth in UNSW's Navigating Uncertainty podcast. Please join us again when we approach the topic of multiculturalism without minority rights in our next podcast.